Okay, good morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And chapter 10. Did you folks in the car outside? That hymn was called Times Like These. In times like these, you need a Savior. What a timely hymn. Be very sure. Be very sure that Christ is your solid rock. 
a good thought. We're going to be in Luke in Mark chapter 9 and 10 this morning. We're looking at, and I'm not moving past quickly, I understand it. Glad that you're okay with it. Not moving past the idea of discipleship yet and Christ's formula for a true and proper disciple. We're going to look through both chapters 9 and 10 because it's amazing what happens and transpires there after his teaching on what it means. And before we get into this hour, I want to thank people for praying for Nancy, our sister Nancy. She's doing better. Mm. She's better. Connie's granddaughter, Brittany. We'll pray for her. Little medical problem last night. Things better. Each of us, we all. During the week, I get a lot of texts. I know you believe that. But mostly they're just... Um, encouraging text. And I want to thank everybody before we begin for your kindness in this congregation. Through pastor appreciation and then the holiday season and Christmas and then I had a birthday this week and you all have been very kind and I thank you for that. You remember me well and you and honestly too much. <laughs> but I thank you. I know it's from your heart. I know that it takes time to do those things and I really, really do appreciate it. And the comments are often they're very similar, thanking me for my time of study and preparation. And uh, I want to say this clear as I can, my pleasure. I love doing this. I love it. And I'm just hoping you hear something. I'm hoping I'm bringing something to you that's beneficial some way. That's my prayer. And so thank you all for your kindness and your attendance and attendance, paying attention to what we're doing here. Some of you, different than others, are studiers who take notes and go back and text me during the week. I enjoy that. I, uh, as much as you want to, I'm happy to, to respond to that best I can. I'm not very good at texting. I'm not very good at anything on the telephone, but I do. Uh, am inspired by your studying and your questions. I have people I've preached to for 25 years now never asked me one question. I think that's interesting. That means I'm a very thorough teacher. <laughs> There's a very big lack of interest somewhere, so you, you decide. Those of you outside, thanks for coming. Thanks for sitting with your dashboard and each other. It's not the same. It's not what I like it to be. This is not corporate worship as the God intended. But thanks for being here. And... Uh, I just want to thank people this morning. We're looking this morning at Luke, or I keep saying, Mark, chapter 9, 10. And it's, it's coming out of, of Mark 8, where the Lord gave, gave the formula, the pattern, the characteristics of a real disciple. I made I preached the entire sermon on two weeks ago, and then last week gave you attitude a little bit, but I don't, I don't want to move past it yet. I want you to see with me, and this is so different than what the world teaches, and many churches won't touch the topic. I don't know why. Because it is, I guess, and I suppose, it, it's very challenging. It calls us to something. Well, listen, this Christ came down in the form of a man. God came down in the form of a man and lived a life of suffering and was tortured and beaten 
I don't think any other man could have lived through the, the initial beating and then he went and hung on the cross and died for you and me. And he says this to his disciples, follow me. Follow me. And then he says, whosoever will come after me, whosoever will come after me, if you will, and you will, your personal will, you will too come after me, you make it your point and it is your desire to follow me, here's what it means to follow me, deny yourself. Chapter 8 and verse 34. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I think so few people not only don't pay attention, but don't understand the meaning of the verse. Now, I also believe this morning as we look at that, we see in chapter 8 and verse 31, it says he, be he began to teach them that he was going to go die and suffer. Chapter 9 and verse 31, it says, And he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is to be delivered to the hands of men, and they should kill him. And he began to teach his suffering and resurrection. Suffering, death, and resurrection. And we go to chapter 10, and we see in verse 32, it says that he began to tell them what things should happen unto him. This is news. This is brand new to the disciples. They're six months away from the cross, and Jesus begins to teach them now what's going to happen. Hard for them to get a hold of. And every time he says it, every time the Bible says it, it says they looked at each other and wondered and were afraid to ask him what that meant. What does that mean? But he said, I'm going to go and suffer and die and rise again. Follow me. What does that mean to be a disciple? Follow me. And so we have in verses, uh, the verses that contained in chapters 9 and 10, the actual life examples of disciples and what it means to have a disciple's call. Now I want to stay at the front of this and at the onset of this message. It is my opinion. I see it in no commentaries. I'm, I'm a, out of drift this week and I found in no commentaries any light thoughts, so I'm on my own here. But it's my opinion that Jesus gave the call, gave the formula, and the next two chapters show various life examples of what it means to or not to accept the call. It's my opinion. After the greatest characterization of discipleship, and we see that, we just read that, deny yourself. For what shall it profit a man, in verse 36 of chapter 8, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, huge ideas. Tremendous thought. And when I was younger, I'd, quite frankly, when I was younger, I would preach that and think, how do you ask a man what will you give in exchange for your soul? But I learned afterwards you don't have to. They'll tell you with their daily life. People just tell you. They show you. They live a life that shows you what they would give in exchange for their soul. around me in my lifetime and always are people who didn't need church. They didn't need corporate worship. They don't need that. And that that's, strikes the heart of a lot of people because they live with or are or, or, or people who think that. Hey, I'm doing fine. I'm making a living. I'm advancing in this world. I have more than we had 20 years ago. 
We have more than we had 20 years ago. But I want to tell you this, and I want you to think about it honestly, that people do that outside of the church, really. I mean, it's, and sometimes one of them goes to church, the other one doesn't. One time, sometimes none of them go. But it's a whole idea that we don't need very much of that. If you ever thought or think in your mind, I went to church and I gave my tithe and God owes me something now, you're not even close to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not even close. Now, if you're really a disciple, if you're really someone who's learning and wanting to be and add and to the kingdom and, and put, promote his program, and you do those things, you go to church and you tithe, those are rewardable things. You, and interesting, because both people are doing the same thing, it's proper perspective that makes it a blessing or a non-blessing. And God won't curse you for giving money to the church and thinking you're doing a big thing. He didn't curse you for that. He just can't bless you for it. I'm not trying to tell you not to tithe. I've never preached a message on tithing in my 28 years of preaching or whatever I've done. I've never preached just on a topical sermon on, on tithing. I've preached the passages expositorily. And when tithing is in the passage, we talk about it. Tithing is between you and God. And I'm telling you this, if, you're, if your heart is right and you're giving money to the church because you love the Christ, you want to further the kingdom, you're grateful for what he's done for you, and you want to give back some, he will bless you beyond belief. It's true. It's true. But if you're tithing to gain a blessing, if you're tithing to get God's favor, it doesn't work. I preached that in one of my first sermons in a Kansas City church, and the man said, you'll never preach here again. Don't you ever tell my congregation not to tithe. I, he said, I live on that. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If I have to tell you to put money in the plate, the blessing is not there. I live on God's hand. I live out of God's hand. I do. Oh, I do. But I'm not going to tell you to give money so I'll have a better life. If the Holy Spirit doesn't convict your spirit and you don't want to give, there you go. Can't use it. And so the next chapters. After chapter 8, and when God, when God himself in the person of Christ says, this is what it means to be a disciple. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I used to wonder about that. And now I know. I just talk to them. Stop by their house in the evening, and all they can talk about. They have a topic on, on their mind. People have a topic on their mind. They talk about something regularly. When I was young, I got into the haircutting business. One of my worries in beauty school, beauty school, how about that? One of my worries was this, man, what am I going to say to all these people? What am I going to talk about all day with these people? Trust me, you don't have to say a word with most people. They'll wear your earballs out while your ears will be ringing red when they leave. You know what they're telling you? what they give in exchange for their soul. Many of them. Many of them. And so this is going to be a different Sunday. We're going to look at things a little differently this morning. We look now, we're going to go through the topics of the two chapters. 
rapid fire and just see what Jesus dealt with after he told his disciples what it means to be a disciple. It says in chapter uh, 8, by the way, in verse 34, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also. He's not just talking to his disciples saying this is what it means to be one of the inner twelve. This is what discipleship is. There were other people standing around. He called them all in and said, to follow me, here's what you have to do to be a follower of mine. And so we started last week with the transfiguration. What, what, what was learned in that passage? So Peter had just made the statement, and Jesus Christ, and by the way, this is the, this is the idea of the passages today. Jesus wants us to clearly understand who He is. People cannot be and will not be, and there's no reason to be, a disciple unless we understand who Christ is. A disciple to whom? And by the way, why are you worth following? And so Jesus said, Peter, who do men say that I am? And he said to his disciples, who, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say this prophet and that prophet, blah. And he said, that's interesting. Now, who do you say I am? Peter said, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou. You got that from the throne on high. You don't understand that in your flesh. You can't know that until God tells you that. Congratulations, you're learning. And so when he calls us to be a disciple, the first thing we have to realize or be motivated by or have any understanding of is this. Who are we a disciple of? And what motivates us to deny ourselves, take up a cross, an instrument of death, and follow this leader, this person? What motivates us to do that? Well, I want to say to you quite frankly that I have a little bit of an advantage on some people in that I study a lot and look at the words and understand uh, the, the scripture to some degree because of a lot, a lot of study that most people really don't do. And I'm telling you straight up, if I wasn't the preacher, I wouldn't either. Some days I've got to say, I've got to stop what I'm doing and clean up and go study for a couple hours. <laughs> I have to put that time in. Now, my heart is always this way. I get to put that time in. But you don't have to do that. You're not preparing a message for Sunday. And what you're doing, you keep doing now listen, Bible study is a must to a disciple. Intensive Bible study is a must to a disciple. If you were ever a student of the Bible in a discipleship understanding that you studied harder and longer, and some of you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naming, I'm, I'm just saying, this is what I've, I've learned from some age now and friends and myself. If you were ever in a place where you studied longer and harder in the Bible, growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ and knowledge of the Savior, and you're not in that anymore, time has gotten away, you may think you know enough, you may say, well, Don is so thorough and so good that I don't need to. You may say that, I doubt it. But you may be in a place where you're not studying like you once did. Here's what I want to tell you. Here's, here's, a, here's a proof and here's the outcome of that idea. You will now begin to justify your behavior on things outside of biblical characteristics that are pleasing to God. You will come to a place where 
I know all that. Okay, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. That is what Janet and I talk to most people about in our adult lives. There was a time when I was younger that I really studied. I really was, I went to, the, I went to Bible school. I went to Sunday night uh, Bible class. I went to all these things. And there was a time that I was a more prolific Bible reader and studier. But now, not so much. And the reasons are manifold to this point. Something hurt me along the way, and I just kind of lost track. Business has picked up, and I'm older now, and I'm in, I'm in charge of more things, and I'm busier than I ever was. And there's a lot of different reasons, and I fight all of them. I fight every one of them. I've had a home project now for a month, I'm building some things in my house, and I had to just stop at some points and just say, I'd like to finish what I'm doing, I'd like to go on, I'd like to complete the task, but I need to clean up my tools now and clean up me and sit down before the Lord and ask Him to open the Word to me. Now, you're not going to do that. and I'm not, That's not a condemnation. That's saying you're not preparing a message. And you'll finish. I would have finished the job. Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say I am? And through the rest of the Gospels to the crucifixion, He is telling them and showing them who He is because once we understand who the Christ is, and then we have someone worthy of taking up the cross for. We don't understand that. I'm telling you, there's just no reason to do it. Most people justify their shortcomings saying this, God understands I am flesh, and I don't believe it's that big of a deal. Where the Bible says... Oh, it's huge. The judgment seat, if you don't understand this, and a lot of people ask me these questions, the judgment seat for a Christian called the Bema Seat, the Bema Seat is not about condemnation. It's about commendation. It is the Lord rewarding us for the things that we did do. And that commendation, not condemnation, we're not going to hell. You're, if you're at the Bema seat, you're not going to hell. It's the same as if you're at a tribunal. You're not going to freedom. This is why you're hanging. As uh, A tribunal is this is why you're dying. The Bema seat is this is how you're going to live for eternity. And it's based on what you did for me in your lifetime that I can reward you for. And folks... I can't believe there are Christians around me who say this. That doesn't matter. As long as I make it to heaven, that doesn't matter. That means to that person, I have not studied and understood who Christ is. If you think if you, think you or I could believe I am going to meet Christ face to face one day and look at Him and go, oh, well, hmm, I think I did too much for you. Or, can you imagine the heart that would look Christ in the eye and say, Oh, I did plenty. Oh, I'm good. <laughs> I believe every one of us is going to look him in the eye and say this. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. I'm sorry for the times my flesh and the world and the devil and all that came against me and I, I lived in the flesh. I'm so sorry for that. Now, you may think it different than that, and that's okay, but that's my heart, and I believe this. 
Use your imagination. One day we're all going to stand before Christ and give an account of this life. Whether we did good or evil. That's the only that's all the Bible gives the choices for good or evil. Whether we, what we did for him or what we did for us. All flesh motivation. Now, folks, throughout this passage and these passages, Jesus from time to time reminds them, I told you now. In verse 31 of chapter 8, he began to teach them. In 31 of chapter 9, he taught his disciples. And in 32 of chapter 10, he began to tell them the things that should happen to him. So intermittently along the way, he keeps confirming who he is. And so now in, in rapid fire succession, let's look at what happened in those two chapters. The transfiguration. This is a clearing now of Peter's vision. Peter said, Thou art the Christ. And they go, and you find in Matthew, the disciples were sleeping. When they woke up, Christ was as white as light, as white as snow, as white as any fuller soap or any laundromat could make whiter than that and glowing with a light. It was amazing. And beside him, when the disciples woke up, was Moses and Elijah. You think this was helping the disciples to understand and give reason to be a disciple? I told you last week, I want you to remember this. Transfiguration is the opposite of masquerade. It's actually Jesus coming in reality. That's who he really is. It's the opposite of masquerade. I'm not saying he masqueraded as a human. What I'm saying is the opposite of masquerade. That is, he wasn't dressed in a costume. He was undressed from the costume. He was exposing his glory. You know when, when Jesus is going to call Peter to some things? In the, in the days to come, before and after the cross, Jesus is going to call Peter to some things. And if I were Peter, this would help me to follow that. To see Jesus Christ for who he really is outside the flesh. And so we have that. Verse 14, we talk about the, begins to talk about the disciples' inability to cast out a demon from a little boy. Now we're moving quickly, and it says this. Verse 18, whenever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And they could not. Well, they'd been endued with power from on high. It's already recorded twice in the book of Mark that Jesus gave them power over evil spirits and demons. But this kind, this kind, the principalities and the powers and the more strong demons, this kind, the Lord said. What is the answer? What is the answer to the entire problem of their weakness and their inability to cast out this demon, verse 19, and he answered and said, bring him unto me. You want to know when you're doing your best work as a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's not in your power and your authority. It's when you bring them unto Jesus. you believe that? 
The best work we do to advance the kingdom and live the life of a kingdom man or a kingdom woman, the best work that we do is show them an example that they would desire to be part of the kingdom, but we bring them unto Jesus. Because he says this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. What is worth in this world giving up food and spending your time in a prayer closet? What's worth it? Well, Jesus manifested himself. Verse 33. Verse 33. And he came into Capernaum, and being in the house, they asked him, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? What's the argument you've been having there? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. <laughs> what does it mean to be a disciple? Arguing on who's going to be the greatest clearly is the problem. And you know what Jesus said? Verse 36, he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him up in his arms, isn't that wonderful? He said to them, Whosoever shall receive one of, his, of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And you go back to the 18th of Matthew, and he says this, Whosoever does not humble themselves as a little child cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Very explicit. Verse 38. And here's the question of a disciple. Can you be as good a Christian as I am if you belong to a different denomination or go to a different church or teach or preach with a different method than I do? You read the Bible. John's, John's all worked up about this. He said he's walking around casting out in your name. And he's not one of us. The Lord said, well, leave him alone. If he's casting out in my name... Power to him. What about that church across the highway over there, that one over there, and this one over here? Why well, are they as good as we are? I mean, they're not part of us. Can they be as good as we are? Folks, there's real good things going on all over. And there's real bad things going on all over. But what denomination, what church you go to, if the Lord's being preached and taught, if the Bible is held as supreme, if Jesus Christ is taught as the Lord and Savior, there are a lot of different methods. I went to a church for two weekends out in the country where a guy wore absolutely ripped up clothes. His, his t-shirt looked like he'd uh, Siegfried and Roy or somebody. Like he, he, he fought a tiger and lost. And he had on shorts and they were different lengths even and just stringy hanging and they were dirty. And he had an old pair of tennis shoes with no... Uh, no shoestring, flop tongues flopping out, and we got together after a few minutes of uh, greeting each other, and we had a Bible study. Man, his his approach to Bible teaching was so unorthodox to me that I I couldn't even hardly listen. But I looked around the room, and there were young people there, and college students. Boy, they were nodding and kind of on in awe of what he was doing. I think the music in a church makes a difference. 
I think there's music that makes my soul ready to worship, and there's music that sets my soul away from the idea of, of worship. So it's a negative to me. But I'm telling you this. Jesus said, if he's preaching, if he's preaching me and, and doing in my name the work of the kingdom, leave him alone. Leave him alone. I do my very best week by week to bring you the scriptures as truth, truth and honesty the best I can. But there are people all over preaching different methods, different ways that are doing a way better job, job than I am. God bless them. And they got a different name on the door of their church. And I don't see that as one of the questions on the test when we meet the Christ. His question is not going to be what church did you go to. It's going to be how much did you love me. Amen, brother. Plain and simple. Is that teaching on how to be a disciple? I think it is. Verse 42. Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me. You see that? This is a text we used in our last hour, so I won't get into it too deeply, but I'm going to tell you this. Woe unto the man or the woman who offends children. Woe. I don't just mean, hey, you're going to get in some trouble, you're going to hear about it once, one more time. I mean this, the wrath of God is going to come upon these people. Because it is in these little minds and hearts that lives are shaped and belief systems are set in. I shared my test. I shared a little bit last hour. I shared just a little bit again. It was in my early years when someone told me Jesus loved me in such a way I believed it, and it shaped my entire life. Ugly things did come, and people did hurt me, but I always believed Jesus was greater, and they would meet Him for that one day. I still do. And I'm talking clearly about this: those who don't even allow the children to be born. That's number one. And and look out. And then after they're born, they go home to these homes and a lot of these, uh, particularly the dads for some reason, they're the smart ones in the house and they got to get a belly and a beer and a stack of Fritos and watch the ball games and tell their kids how foolish they are to be running down to that church building. Woe unto them. The 18th of Matthew, we read it there and he says this, for those that despite these children... The eyes of the angel, of that child, guardian angels, are looking forever at the face of God. They're, looking, they're not watching the child, they're watching God. And God says, somebody's hurting them. They're being lied to. Do you know the problem we have in this world right now with torture of all kinds of children? They're for sale. 800,000 a year in America alone go missing. I want to tell you something straight up. I don't understand it, but I want to tell you this. If my child went missing, so would I. I wouldn't turn my back. I wouldn't be threatened out of it. Because I'll tell you a secret right now. If someone stole my child, I would be dead anyway. Life would not be. 800,000 a year in our country go missing and you don't hear about it. If mine went missing, you'd hear about it. Would I go and do what I had to do? Count on it. Count on it. You don't harm the children. <coughs> you don't. I know enough. 
I saw enough as a child in a home where a parent died early to know this. Don't hurt the kids. They'll never recover. They never fully recover. And the worst thing I've seen, the worst of all of it is the little girls. You somehow get into this mind and the spirit and the belief system of a little girl that she's unworthy. Oh, God. What she will do in the name of love. Finding love, being loved, being cared about. People think it's funny. Oh, the Lord's going to talk to him one day. You know what I made her to be? The Lord says, you know what I gave you a daughter to be? Do you know what I made that little girl to be? And look what she became because you despised her. You hurt her. She didn't just live in a life of the flesh. She had to try to grow through scars. Scars don't stretch too well. Look at her. Look at her today. And then it's just prolific. Those women have little girls. Oh my, what comes out of that? Do you think this is part of learning to be a disciple of Christ? Don't hurt the children. Don't you hurt the children. Don't do it. So we have chapter 10. Chapter 10. The chin opens with the idea and the teaching on divorce. in verse 2 the Pharisees came to him and asked him is it lawful for a man to put away his wife tempting him they didn't want to know the answer they wanted to back him in a corner uh, 101 discipleship is don't try to back Jesus in a corner these weren't disciples they weren't trying to be disciples but this is a good lesson don't try to outsmart Jesus and Jesus answers them with this, yes, originally that was not so. That was not the way that God intended marriage. It's not the way God intended marriage. It is not. Divorce was never part of the question. But because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses wrote a law and said, you may, you got to kick her out if she burns the biscuits. I mean, who'd want that again? And that's about how it got. But he said that was not from the Father's heart or the throne of God. That was from Moses because of all of the hatred and the bitterness in the camp of Israel. And he ends with this. He ends with this, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 10. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Matthew adds to the same text, he adds that if fornication is involved, that's a reason that God will accept for divorce. Anyway, if you are divorced, and I am, and you didn't want the divorce, according to Jesus Christ, you're clean, and you're free to go and marry again. To the person who did the putting away, let me add this 
The reasons are what God looks at. I've had many people come here over the years, and I found myself in the same boat, but I had many people come here over the years with these passages just in agony over them over divorce. And the woman says, I, I'm, I'm going to file because he beats me every night or he threatens me or whatever. Can I tell you this? The guilt shifts, <laughs> clearly. But that's what divorce is talked about. We go then in chapter 10 to verse 13. And he says this on discipleship, and they brought a young children, they brought young children to him, that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. The disciples got mad because they were bringing children. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. And he said to them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In heaven, there's the, so let's get this idea. Heaven is going to be filled with little children. Before God, we're going to be little children. Isn't that good, isn't that good again? Because some of you old people, I'm getting sick of being around. I'm getting tired of looking in the mirror at this thing and trying to clean it up every day. Here's, what, here's the answer. I said it in the first hour and I'll say it again. You with little children and us who have them and have a memory you remember seeing two little kids see each other and just run at each other. They weren't, they weren't upset at what the other one was wearing. They weren't critical about anything. They were just wanting to play. Will you play with me? Will you come here and be my friend? Will you? And the ones that learn to share, they get a lot better crack the Snickers in half and give it to that little you know it's fun to watch little kids just, just enjoy each other but the Lord said if we don't learn to humble ourselves and come as little children we cannot enter the kingdom if you think you're better than somebody today you're not in the running for kingdom now you're better than a mass murderer in some respects I get that but if you think as a person you're better than another person this judgmental attitude in the church is wrong is wrong if you think you can't invite this other person home to your house, as the Lord said, I want you to open your home and I want you to share what you have with others because they smell funny. Maybe their shower doesn't work. Maybe they can't get in. Maybe they can't get out. But I'm telling you this, if we love each other as the Lord calls us to love each other, the person that does that, they glow. People notice and they say that person glows. They have an honest love for the children of God. And I mean His creation. I'm not saying take home people only because they're Christians. As a matter of fact, the Bible says take them home because they're not. Show them the bounty of the Lord. Let them feel the presence of the Lord in your home. Let them feel the peace and the joy of what it means to be grateful for what God has given you. You don't have to have a lot. It doesn't have to be all perfect. It doesn't have to... Look like a pottery barn. It doesn't have to look like a barn either, but somewhere between those two. You ought to pick up, clean up, and wash some things. But God said, take them home and love them. And love them. Now here's the one that got me thinking about the whole passage. Here's the one who got me thinking about these two chapters being 
life examples of discipleship, and it is the passage of the rich young ruler. In verse 17 it says, When he had gone forth to them, he came, uh, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And here again we have the problem of the doing mentality. What must I do? Christ already did. What must I do to be saved, the Bible says. You go back to John and 6, it says, What must I do to do the works of, of God? And Jesus' answer was, Believe. You want to do the work of God? You believe. That's the work of God. This rich young ruler says, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? All the way through, Jesus is saying, Do you know who I am? In this one, he says, If you're calling me good, you must believe I'm God because there's only one that's good, and that's God. You must be relating to me as God, and so if we're going to start on that level, let's begin there. Do you believe that he is God? Because if you believe he's God, as Peter learned in several ways, but the transfiguration, he saw him without his fleshly robe. He said, why do you call me good? For there is none that's good but one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. And he skipped to the second half of the commandments as they relate from person to person, not persons to God. Jesus skipped to the second of the commandments, the second part of the commandments, and how is it that you relate to fellow man? Thou knowest, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus beholding him, look what it said now. Love him. Jesus looking at him, kneeling there on his knees before him, and the conversation was rolling. And he thought he did that. This young man thought he really did those things. Everything you said, I've done. And Jesus does not say, you didn't. But it said Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Here's the greatest two things, what I'm going to say right now and what I'm going to say in just a moment. These are the greatest two things I've learned of discipleship. No matter how hard it is, <coughs> no matter how wrong I am before the Christ, no matter what's going on with me in my confusion or in my joy, Jesus loves me. What he's going to do next is out of a heart of love. That's the greatest thing I've learned about being a disciple of Christ or trying to be or wanting to be or desiring to be or willing to be. A disciple of Jesus Christ is, no matter how bad it hurts and how much I don't understand his timing or his reasoning or his approach to the problem, he loves me. He loves me. He loves you. No matter how bad the problem, no matter how bad and how long it drags out, and how, no, matter, no matter, God loves me and he's in charge. That's the greatest lesson in my life on discipleship. And it says, Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said, One thing thou lackest, go thy way and sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, 
and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. You notice something missing out of that line? Now, I've had more people come and tell me this. I've gotten, my business is prospering and I'm doing well. Do I have to sell everything and give everything away to honor the Lord? He's not talking to you. He's talking to this man. He's not talking to everybody here. He's talking to this man. But look what he says. You go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you can come, take up your cross and follow me. Why is deny yourself not in there? Because he was telling him to deny himself. How to deny himself. Himself, his persona, the way he saw himself and what he desired in life was to be rich. And he worked hard at it and he made it. That was his persona. This is what I've taught to you and called the great agenda exchange. When I come to Jesus, what must I do? What do you want me to do? Here I am, Lord, what shall I do? It's very often different than what I would have planned usually is and it's usually a painful journey but the Lord says trust me I love you isn't that interesting reading this verse I got the idea that well all of this this is the Lord saying this is how you deny yourself yourself has a problem with material goods get rid of them you can't love two God you can't serve two gods you have a God in material things you can't love and serve God and mammon. Get rid of the mammon and follow me. Now that's not what he would say to us. We have our own individual. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Change your agenda. Maybe not, but it's an agenda. It's saying, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. And then he taught against riches and said, how hard now is it for people who are rich to go to heaven? Because they believe in the riches. That's discipleship training. Verse 32 tells again that he was on the way and began to teach them. Verse 35 begins a passage where it says this. He grant us, said um, John and James, that we may sit one on thy right side and one on the other in the glory. And you know what Jesus said to them? I can't give you that. Those are earned positions by faithful service. I told you before, being closer to the Lord and the light, the light and the outer darkness, those closest to the Lord will be those that serve Him here. And those that live their life for their own selfish and lustful pleasures, they're going to be in outer darkness. And the Baptist church doesn't want to talk that way. But the throne of heaven does. And then the last one, we're done. Beginning at verse 46 of chapter 10, it says, They came to Jericho, and the disciples went out with a great number of people, and blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, that's what Bartimaeus means, the son of Timaeus, set by the highway side begging, listen very carefully, this is beautiful, and, and no wonder the Holy Spirit ends the teaching this way. When they heard it, it was Jesus. When he heard it, it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and to say, "Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me." Did you ever have that day? Did you? 
Did you ever have a day when you knew you had a malady and the one that could fix it was near? Did you have a day when you cried out and said, Jesus, have mercy on me? I can tell you I remember the day. I remember the day. Jesus, have mercy on me. You know what Jesus did? Verse 49. God stood still. You want to stop God? You want to get God's attention? You want to stop God? Cry out from a real heart of belief and faith. God have mercy on me. What is your problem currently? It is blindness is something else. What is your problem? Everybody has problems. Whatever your problem is, and most people won't admit it, the bigger the problem, the less they'll admit it is a problem. But if you have a problem, I have problems. What is your problem today? And what are you willing to cry out to God and say, stop, God, stop here? Come to my house and stop here for a moment. Would you stop, God? And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying, Be of good comfort. Rise, he calleth for thee. Now here's one of the biggest verses in the Bible to me. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. What that garment was? That's how he made a living. The blind beggar's garment. That's the word he wrapped around himself and sat by the wall and pounded on a tin cup. And blew his nose. He pounded on a tin cup. That's good to have a microphone to do that. I'm going to start gagging that. So he, he, had a, he had a cloak around him that told everybody he was blind. And he held a cup. And he tapped on the cup. I'm a blind man. Give me some money. i got to live. And that's how he made his living. Now think about this with me for just a minute. He said, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still. He heard it. He said, bring that man here to me. You bring that man here to me. And they went and got the man. They said, be of good comfort. Good news. We got good news for you. Jesus wants to talk to you. And the man didn't stand up and say, guide me over there. He didn't stand up and say, take my hand and take me there. He didn't stand up and say, oh, I hope he helped me a little bit. I hope he took his garment and he threw it off. Nothing's going to be the same. Nothing's going to be the same now. This Jesus is going to touch me. I'm telling you this, folks. We're in a strange time in this world and things are about to be revealed that's going to put you on your ear. We're in a time in this world where things that God's about to do some things that are going to shock Christians. The rest of the world's not going to know how to handle it. We're in a time where God is preparing His church and I mean not the ways down the road. I mean by the time I believe the leaves pop on the trees and the grass begins to grow. I believe Jesus is going to be bringing revival to His church. I believe that. I believe He's telling my spirit that. 
He's going to put down and expose a lot of evil, and then he's going to bring the fear of the Lord back into the church. Because, man, we lack it now. We lack it. You know how... You know how we'll prosper in the days to come? Take off that garment and cast it away. Expose ourselves fully to Christ. That thing I was hiding behind, that thing that was telling the world, have pity on me, that thing that was saying, I can't, I can't, so you help me. Take that and cast it away and say this, Lord, I want to help them. Who would you have me help today? And this church is the most giving and loving and compassionate group I've ever preached in. This, this, this body right now. I said at the top of the hour and I close with this. You've been so good to me, it, it's, not, uh, it's almost unreasonable how good you've been to me. And who told you I like food? I don't know, but many of you figured that out. <laughs> My wife. Blah, blah, blah. How do they know I like food? Give me these credit cards for... I don't know. You people are discerning spirits. I'm telling you, as the Spirit of God is moving in our world today, He's going to do a work in our day that we will not believe. And then He's calling His church back and saying this. I believe He's going to give, and, and don't listen to the media right now. The persecution of Christians is coming on. You're not going to be, don't believe that stuff. He's going to make us again the head and then the tail. He's going to make them run from us. We're going to have a day when the Spirit of the Lord is in the church, when the fear of the Lord is taught and preached and prayed and lived. We're going to live when the church is going to be growing in the next few years because the light is on again. We've been living in darkness a long time. We've been living under the cloak of darkness a long time. And I'm telling you, and I believe, and you can mark my words and call me a liar in six months, but I'm telling you this, Jesus Christ is going to straighten her out. Everybody's going to see it. And this church is going to prosper. Those who are saying hateful and evil things against the church and the children of God now are going to be afraid to say those things. The tables are going to turn, I believe. Do you love it? If Jesus comes and stands still beside you, would you throw the cloak away? Would you say this is a new day? He makes all things new. Praise God. Because I'll tell you right now, He does. He is so good. He loves you so much. He wants you to quit worrying about and trusting in yourself. He wants you to quit worrying about what you have and trusting what He has for you. Not about money. Not about houses. It's about loving each other. Believe it? He is good. Thank you. Father, bless our days now. Bless our day today. Bless us. Bless our homes. Bless our families. Bless those in our circles of influence that they might see the real life of Christ in us. May we emanate. May we just do the love of Christ in this world. Those that would hate us, let them hate us. But Father, we just thank you for loving us. Be our strength. Be our wisdom. Be our joy be our Savior. We thank you for all of that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.